A United Airlines DC-6 is flying to LaGuardia when they crash over Mount Carmel, Pennsylvania. What caused the crew to become incapacitated and hit a hill? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Oh, hey. And we're all exhausted. <laughs> yeah. Ain't that the truth? So, Miranda, one of Miranda's brothers got married today. Yep. They first, wanted, first one of the triplets to be married. Yeah. And they wanted a morning, or they didn't want, they got a morning wedding. Yup. A Sunday morning wedding, no less. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't really a choice. Uh, it was the cheapest thing they could do. and I understand. She wanted it on a specific day. That's okay. So October first, to be clear. Yep. To be specific. So congratulations, you two. Yes. Not that you'll ever listen to they, this. They won't. But but we've all been up since like four. I mean, we dude, we've all napped as well. But I'm so I'm still so tired. It didn't. Yeah, it's still an exhausting day. I'm it's always an exhausting so day. So tired. Always an exhausting day. That being said, uh, this is gonna be a short episode. It is a short episode, and that's actually doesn't have anything to do with that. That just has to do with the way the report is. <laughs> it ended up being that this fell on this day. Yes, which was. For our sake, fortuitous. Very fortuitous. Because <laughs> I got to go home and go to bed because I got to go work tomorrow. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, me too. It doesn't feel like Sunday. I wish it was Saturday. I know. I have so much stuff to do for work this week. It's not even funny. I got so many deadlines on Friday. Ugh. I don't want to think about jobs. <laughs> me, me neither. You're the one who brought it up. I know. But, okay. That being said, you should still sign up for the newsletter. The newsletter is also on the website under the newsletter tab so if you didn't sign up and you would like to look at the newsletter for october you can go find it on our website under the newsletter tab yes indeedy and you should also like look at the patreon and the merch page yep and do all that stuff too all of those things with that what are we covering today nick today we are covering United Airlines Flight 624. Thank you to Matt for recommending this. Thanks, Matt. Matt recommended a lot, so you'll get a lot of Matt these next few weeks. Okay. Okay. Well, like we said, this one was relatively short, and that has to do with when this happened. This occurred on June 17th of 1948. This one is an olden an oldie but a goodie? No. No. Oh. <laughs> Never mind. You ready for a wild ride? Because it's a wild ride. Sure. This was a Douglas DC-6 with the tail number November Charlie 37506, back when we used to use NC instead of just November. Which is, by the way, why a lot of you nerds out there are suddenly like, wait a minute, but NC, and then you think, Star Trek, and I appreciate that. That's because they pulled that from the original registration numbers we used in the United States, and that was the whole theory behind it. That's where they got it. But then we switched to just N numbers for registrations, and then that's no longer pertinent. This one was named the Mainliner Utah, because United still named their planes at the time. Oh, like Pan Am? Yeah. So the DC-6, we've covered them before, but just for a quick recap, is a sizable quad-engine 
piston airplane, radial. So it's got four engines. Well, they're piston driven. We're in the 40s. Yes, so and they're was... radials. Right. This is right post World War II. The DC 6 is, at the time, I believe, the largest airliner on the market. And that said, they That's were. That's a problem. Yes, they were quite popular, them and the DC 4. And they were also pretty new at the time. Especially post-World War II, there was a sudden mass production of them because the airlines suddenly needed them for all the people that wanted to fly after the war. The war! The war! The war! Guys, if you haven't gone and watched that on TikTok, Mm -hmm. please do. However, and if this is any indication, not to get on a small rant, about how outdated Southwest way of things is, is they still use this form of uh, flight planning and route mapping. But this was a flight, much like the 1940s do, from San Diego to Los Angeles to Chicago to New York. We will be talking about the Chicago to New York leg, what is now New York LaGuardia, and what was at the time Chicago Municipal, which is neither airport, by the way. Where the hell was it? I think it was in the footprint of O'Hare, but I'm not entirely sure. It actually might have been in the footprint of Midway. Either way, it is... Neither airport's actual existence today. If you look it up on the Wikipedia page, it actually has a link directly to the Chicago Municipal. Airport. hmm Page. No, my dude, that is Midway. Okay. It redirects to Midway. So now it's Midway. But at the time, it was Chicago Municipal, and it was none of these things. It wasn't anything that really existed today. Not yet. Anyway. LaGuardia was actually LaGuardia. It was originally named Chicago Air Park. Yes. It was built on a 320-acre plot in 1923 with one cinder runway for airmail flights. In 1926, the city leased the airport and named it Chicago Municipal Airport on December 12, 1927. By 1928, the airport had 12 hangars and four runways, which were lit for night operations. Impressive. A major fire on June 25, 1930 destroyed two hangars and 27 aircraft. Twelve of them were tri-motor passenger planes. The loss was estimated at $2 million. Which is a lot more today. Mm Mm-hmm. In 1931, a new passenger terminal opened at 62nd Street. The following year, the airport claimed to be the world's busiest, with whopping 100,846 passengers on 60,947 flights. Cute. That's Denver Denver alone does 67 million now. This year, 69 million. Might have been 69 million. Whatever the case, it's going to be a lot more this year because we had 18 more gates than we had last year. Actually, more than that. Almost 30 more gates than we had last year. So, Jeebus. Anyways, rookie numbers. The captain for this flight was George Warner Jr. He was just 35 years old as a captain. He had 7,310 hours total, of which 30 were on the DC-6. Wow, that's not a lot. No, he's a captain on, at the time, the largest, shiniest airliner the world had to offer. And yet... He had 30 hours on it. Yep. The first officer was Richard Schember. He was just 26 years old, so just nine years younger. He had 3,289 hours total, of which 129 were on the DC-6. So how does that math math? New airplane. Um, New airplane. But but how how is the captain able to be a captain at 30 hours on the aircraft, and the first officer is a first officer with over 100? I don't understand. Because the captain had about more than double... The total hours. They're also probably both World War II vets. Probably, yes. They've probably flown freaking everything. Crazier things. But, yes, they're both new 
to this airplane. Uh, I don't know about a flight engineer. Oh, okay. But there was one because 1948 yes. and DC-6. There might have even <laughs> been a, na- a navigator. There was not. There was because there was four crew members on board, and I know one of them was the stewardess that they listed, but they didn't say anything about the flight engineer. Oh, well, that's weird. It was a little strange, not going to lie. The flights to Chicago were carried out normally. The aircraft arrived at Chicago at 8.52 a.m. local time or central time. At Chicago, the aircraft was given a routine station inspection, where they just look over a few things. It's not dissimilar to what we do now, although they don't go and inspect things physically. They just make sure that there's nothing written up, basically. But back then, they actually used to do a really quick inspection on certain parts of the airplanes because so many moving parts on piston airplanes. It was also fueled with 1,800 gallons of gas. This would be leaded gas. Because 1940. Yes, and also just that's common in aviation anyways, and piston airplanes. It was also loaded with 2,568 pounds of cargo slash bags. There was also a crew swap Chicago to our accident crew from another crew because the airplane had been flying for quite some time. Yeah. Because slow compared to today. The flight departed Chicago at 9.44 a.m. local time with 39 passengers and a crew of four. The takeoff and climb were normal. The flight reached the cruising altitude of 17,000 feet and proceeded on course normally. 11.55 a.m. local time, now eastern time, so we've gone forward a time zone, which is about one hour and 11 minutes after takeoff. The captain reached out to the company radio at LaGuardia to report that the airplane was mechanically, quote-unquote, okay for a return trip. 12.23 p.m., the flight did a routine report over the Phillipsburg, Pennsylvania area, which is about 500 miles east of Chicago. Just four minutes later, the flight crew communicated with the air traffic controller and accepted a routine descent down to between 13,000 and 11,000 feet, because airspaces weren't overcrowded yet, and they could just do that say, just stay somewhere between 13 and 11,000. Another four minutes later, things took a turn for the worse. When the company radio operator at LaGuardia in New York heard a voice over the radio that was calling loudly and frantically, but was not identified, and what they were saying could not be made out. Oh, well, that's not good. But somebody was frantically saying something over the radio. Another United Airlines flight in the area, a DC-3 that had been flying the same route but behind Flight 624, at a different altitude, heard voices over the radio that were screaming and calling for New York. That is what is written in the report, by the way. The same flight also heard a transmission they couldn't make out, followed by one that stated, quote, this is an emergency descent, end quote. Mm. So something is up. Witnesses on the ground noted the airplane flying on a southeasterly heading toward Shemekin, or Shemokin, I don't know, Pennsylvania. They got weird ways of pronouncing things over there. They do. So, I don't know. The flight then flew over Sunbury Airport in Sunbury, Pennsylvania. 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 While flying at about 4,000 feet above the ground. A short time later, the flight was spotted from the ground again, this time flying at just 500 feet to 1,000 feet above ground level. In a shallow left turn, just north of... Shamokin, Shamokin, whatever this town is. Sorry, trying here. Unfortunately, this area was a hilly location, 
as is much of Pennsylvania. It's full of hills, with most being between 900 feet and 1,600 feet around the area, above sea level. As the aircraft was about five miles southeast of Shamakin, they were spotted flying at just 200 feet above ground level when they entered a climbing right turn. So suddenly they were climbing up to the right. Huh? As they passed Mount Carmel, Pennsylvania, the climbing turn suddenly increased sharply, but this wasn't enough to save them, unfortunately, because at 12.41 p.m. local time, the aircraft suddenly struck a large 66,000-volt transformer and power lines. The airplane then fell pretty much straight down from there into the power line clearing on the hillside, crashing into the hill at about 1,649 feet above sea level. Damn. The aircraft exploded on impact. Yeah, I would think so. Scattering wreckage over an area of 580 feet by 175 feet. A post-crash fire scorched much of the wreckage. One person who was one of the first to the scene of the accident stated, quote, The largest piece of the plane left was an engine. The rest of the plane was in small parts, so small they could be carried, end quote. So the airplane clearly really broke up on impact. Yeah. The aircraft crashed within 10 miles of its intended flight path, but not actually on it. They were off course. Hmm. The aircraft had crashed in the area of Mount Carmel, Pennsylvania, which is 135 miles from Philadelphia. It was quickly apparent that all 43 on board perished, perished yeah. in the accident. Not really much of a surprise when you have such a dramatic... High-speed impact with transformer? And power lines, and then fall straight to the ground and explode? Yeah. I believe the term is rapid deceleration. A rapid deceleration and a rapid deconstruction. Yep, they definitely got deconstructed. Rapidly deconstructed via flames. This investigation was performed by the Civil Aeronautics Board, or the CAB, the predecessor to today's NTSB. The cab. We haven't had a cab report in a hot minute. Not, yeah, not in a while. Mm-hmm. Well, there wasn't a whole lot of information to start with, and there's no flight recorders. So, what do we got? The frantic ATC call. Yep. Pretty um, much. And, well, first question... Was there maybe a fire on board? A smoke detector and five of the six fire detectors, don't know how those are different, from the Ford baggage compartment were found. Investigation revealed no soot, smoke, or evidence of burning. This, in conjunction with further testing of other components, determined that no fire existed on board. But wait, hold on, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Why are the CO2 bottles from the fire extinguishers that survived the impact empty? Miranda's making a face. What? That is an apt face. That in conjunction with a recording of the last transmission to New York, or as they said, New York, New York, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At 12.31, that though garbled in part was helpful, led to the conclusion that one or both pilots had released the fire extinguishers in the Ford underfloor baggage compartment. Did something explode in the baggage compartment? I don't, there's no evidence of fire. There's no soot. There's, there's nothing. So there seems to be no fire. But again, there was no evidence of fire. But the CAB had received, between the 1st of the year and June 30th, two weeks after the accident, a total of 22 false warnings of fire detectors. So this was not an isolated thing. So the plane was saying there was a fire, but there was no fire? Yeah. More than likely, yes. Or at least that's happened 22 times. And more than likely, that's what's happening here. Okay, but regardless, a false alarm doesn't mean 
a crash. So what gives? Maintenance and operation records show that the airplane was in good condition and the damage to the engines or power plants and their propellers indicates that they were developing power at the time of impact. So did something go wrong when releasing the fire extinguishers? Step one on the checklist is to declutch the cabin superchargers. What the hell is that? I have no idea. Okay. Whatever they are, the ones that were recovered were attached to engines one and four and were examined and they were determined to be declutched. Step one, you you did good. Okay. (laughs) Great. Do I know what any of that is? No. Not really pertinent to the story either. Next is opening the cabin pressure relief valves, which prevents the released CO2 from the fire extinguishers from getting into the cabin and cockpit. The control handle for the pressure relief valves is connected to a drum around which is wound the operating cable. In the open position, the cable would be wrapped around the drum one and a quarter times. In the closed position, it would be wrapped a quarter of a turn. When found in the wreckage, it was wrapped 90 degrees. And that coupled with the witness marks left on the parts of the control mechanism, as well as analysis of the valves themselves, proved that the valves were closed. So they never opened them. Failure to open these may result in excessive amounts of CO2 in the cockpit and cabin. Ooh. You might understand why that's a bad thing. You could suffocate to death. You can certainly do a lot of things because of that. So, just to reiterate, this crash happened on... June 17th of 1948. Okay, so, with that in mind. These valves were installed in all DC-6s in November of 1947 and tested in January to ensure that they actually accomplished the goal of preventing CO2 from leaking into the cabin and cockpit, and testing showed that CO2 levels in the cockpit were no greater than 2%. Good, good to hear. As such, they changed the checklist for the fire extinguishers to include the step of opening the valves per a CAA airworthiness directive in March of 1948, just three months before the accident. Yep. In the same month, the Airline Pilots Association recommended to the CAA and CAB that smoke masks be required to be made available for crews on transport aircraft to ensure that the crew would be able to carry on their work of landing in spite of possible smoke interference. But in light of the recent flight testing in February and the limited smoke and CO2 hazard accordingly, the CAA found the smoke evacuation procedure and emergency fire procedure to be adequate in preventing hazardous concentrations of smoke and CO2 in the cockpit, and that a smoke mask was unnecessary. I might argue the contrary. (laughs) Having an oxygen mask on might actually have helped them in this case. Well, needless to say, the Airline Pilots Association sent another letter in April. Though the details weren't outlined in their report, I imagine the letter was along the lines of, uh, what? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) After that letter, the CAA instituted a medical study of the effect of smoke and noxious gases on the flight crew but it had not yet been completed when the accident occurred. Okay, here, okay, all right, listen here, Linda, okay? (laughs) Yep. Why they think that it it wouldn't be an issue when, if you've ever seen someone who's come out of a burning building before, which, by the way, fires have existed for generations, right? But at this point point in history, not a lot of people make it out of burning buildings. Yes, but generally speaking, when you're even firefighters, when they encounter fires, you cough. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, that's the whole thing. Like, like your, your lungs. Which everyone at this point attributes to smoke. Yes, fair, valid. But smoke is not what we're worried about this time. Quote, Knowledge of human tolerance to CO2 gas is still incomplete. 
particularly as to concentration and period of exposure. Medical testimony received during the course of the hearing was not entirely consistent. One specialist fixed the hazard at 3% for any length of time at sea level, another at 5% for five minutes at sea level, and the third believed that the existing data were not sufficient upon which to base a standard, end quote. Really, the answer is as little as possible. But we don't know at, they, at that point in time, in 1948, they didn't know how much and how long you could be exposed and what effects. This right. is when science was like, I don't know, I, it's, it sucks, but I don't know how bad and how much. It's just, I don't know. In my brain, it's like, but this is the 40s. Yes, I understand that. But they also understood that if you, I would think they would have understood if you don't have enough oxygen, you pass the So they go on to say that it was known that after exposure to CO2 free air, recovery is rapid, which is very true. If you're in an oxygen deprived environment and you get exposed to oxygen, it doesn't take you a long time to come back to it. No. They state that it is possible that CO2 physiologically replaces oxygen and it's possible for the subject to lose consciousness and recover without ever being aware of having lost consciousness. Yeah. You just pass out. Yep. That's called hypoxia so -hmm. guess what this gets worse (laughs) just a month prior to the accident a twa constellation cruising at flight level 190 had a false fire warning and activated the fire extinguishers in the cargo compartment co2 was released and entered the cockpit due to a circulating booster fan and partially incapacitated the crew but that time the emergency landing was performed successfully immediately immediately after that accident the cab called the director of aircraft service of the caa Concerned, one might say. As yeah. it would be, I would think. A test was run in the same airplane, not just the same type, in that airplane. Yep. On June 9th, under the same conditions, and one of the crew members lost consciousness when the fire extinguishers were activated during the test. Yes. Wild and crazy to me that they were just like, let's go up and just see if we pass out. That's what they did back then. <laughs> Why not just do it on the ground? <laughs> they had to do it at altitude. Okay, still, don't. Love that. Yeah. So the following day. It's like death wish. <laughs> yeah. The following day, the Air Transport Association sent a telegram to all DC-6 operators regarding the quote-unquote serious oxygen deficiency in the cockpit when CO2 bottles were pulled. Nah. They recommended that the crew depressurize, regardless of altitude, open the cabin windows, open the cockpit windows, and then pull the CO2. Okay. Which, <laughs> I don't love that. This is really before super pressurized flight, right? So yeah. it, it's okay to do that, but I'm also like, maybe ah! you should go down to 10,000 feet. The right thing to do would be, yeah, get, get low. Yeah. Get low. So this telegram was also sent directly to Douglas on June 14th, who stood the ground and were like, yeah, no, we tested that in February. Like, we're all good. So they requested that the Air Transport Association withdraw any reference to DC-6 aircraft in their June 10th telegram and that the actions requested are extremely dangerous to conduct. I mean, yes. Don't just pop open the windows, please. But June 10th was also seven days before this accident. Um, so this request by Douglas was on June 14th. Which is just three days before the accident. So the Air Transport Association sent out another telegram on June 15th to DC-6 operators. Quote, regard DC-6 CO2 concentration possibilities have been advised by Douglas this adequately covered by their report DEV-133, results of which were included on DC-6 operations manual, end quote. However, that same day, United decided to instruct all DC-6 crews to use oxygen mass when CO2 is released, and a company bulletin was being prepared. 
at the time of the accident. Ah, oh, nah, bruh. Literally at the time Damn. of the accident. Damn. That sucks. Yeah. Like, really bad. Really, really bad. Talk about really bad timing. So following the crash of Flight 624, Douglas conducted 59 individual flight tests for CO2 concentrations. Something we used to do back when things like this happened was do a lot of flight tests. Now we don't do that. When descending from 20,000 feet at 300 miles per hour, flaps and gear up, CO2 levels did not exceed 4.2%. And that peak at 4.2% occurred on a single flight only, with the average for the three minutes of that test being 2%. But when descending from 20,000 feet at 160 miles per hour, with flaps and gear down, a peak concentration was found of 7.8%, with an average of 6.3% over six minutes. Yeah, that's not great. According to OSHA, a modern document, which will be linked on the website, that is what I put in the group chat, if you're wondering why I just linked the USDA, here are what CO2 levels can lead to. Half a percent is OSHA permissible exposure level for eight-hour exposure. One percent, or 10,000 parts per million, Typically, no effects, possible drowsiness. 1.5% mild respiratory stimulation for some people. 3% is moderate respiratory stimulation, increased heart rate and blood pressure, which is the ACGIH TLV short term limit. 4% is immediately dangerous to life or health, or IDLH. 5% is strong respiratory stimulation, dizziness, confusion, headache, shortness of breath. And 8% is dimmed sight, sweating, tremor, unconsciousness, and possible death. So they were... At 7.8%. Right. Yeah. And assuming that the airplane was anywhere near those conditions, or even anywhere in the middle of those conditions, they were still not in good shape. No. 10 minutes elapsed between the crew's last call and impact, which was recorded by the electric company, exactly, at 1241. So, no FDR needed there. Thanks? Question mark? Right. It turns out when you hit a transformer, they know. Exact time. This period of radio silence, coupled with the descent over numerous potential landing sites, including Sunbury Airport, could only be explained by the pilots being physically unable to perform their flight duties as a result of incapacitation. Yeah, in the story, they actually mentioned that within the the area that they had flown over, there were plenty of places they could have made a safe emergency landing, quote-unquote. They just didn't. Right. A medical expert at the time stated, that an exposure to 6% concentration for three minutes would reduce the pilots to a state of confused consciousness. Any higher would lead to a loss of consciousness. This is confirmed by the closed state of the pressure relief valves. And we know that it was a long time, actually, mm-hmm. that they were exposed. More Ten than- minutes, yeah. at least, after they were incapacitated. Right. So, uh, yeah, there's that. They, they be the dead dead. Unfortunately, yes. Unfortunately, because- this was... Very Ultimately, you would just suffocate and die, right? Yep. Because you don't have enough oxygen. Pretty much. We don't know whether or not they were conscious at the time of the accident. That's the hard thing. Either way, it didn't end well. No, it didn't. So here we shall take our break. Yes. And come back. Short second half. Yeah. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, 
We're back. Let's do a nice short second half. There's no recommendations. There are findings. There's a very short probable cause. But we also have some other logistical things we have to do after that. So yes. we will fill a little bit of time here. But findings, I'm just going to read them outright because, again, this is a cab report. So they're nice and succinct to the point. I, I actually really like that. Not that I think that the NTSBs are bad. They pull yeah. on a lot of things, but and they usually have a lot of reference and citations in them which is great. Right. But I like these because they're really easy to read for podcasting. Except for the fact that they're typewritten. There is that, but this report's actually pretty clean. They found that. Are you ready? Are you ready? You ready? We haven't read one of these in a while. The pilot's aircraft and carrier were duly certificated. Yes, they were. Great. Thank you. <laughs> but at least they kept that all in one point. They did. Unlike NTSB reports, which like to put each one of those things as okay. their own Quite long-winded points, usually. They found that one or both of the pilots of the aircraft in a radio transmission received at 1231 on June 17, 1948, by the company radio at LaGuardia Field, reported that fire extinguisher had been released in the forward cargo pit and that the flight was making an emergency descent. Now, you might notice how I never said that in the story. That's because it wasn't written in the story. And it wasn't really till later, much later, that they kind of found out that's what was said. They didn't know that initially. And during the time of the aircraft's emergency, nobody could make that out. Oh, yeah, what they were saying. Yeah. To ATC. Right. They found that the aircraft, after descending to a low altitude, assumed an erratic course in the direction of constantly rising terrain and finally crashed into a transformer in a power line, clearing, or in a power line clearing, on wooded mountainous terrain approximately three miles north, north, or east northeast of Mount Carmel, Pennsylvania. So, question. Yep. Because I just thought of this. Uh huh. So, we know that the pilots probably were incapacitated. What uh -huh. about the passengers? We don't know. The pressure relief valves are there's one in the cabin and one in the cockpit, I believe. So, we can also safely assume that the passengers were incapacitated as At well. At least okay. those in the forward section, because it was the forward hold. That had the, the quote-unquote fire. Quote-unquote fire, right. Okay. But that doesn't mean that the aft passengers weren't also. Correct. We'll never really know. No, but still. They also didn't really test the cabin for CO2 concentrations. They tested the cockpit. Again, that makes sense. Yes. That's, in this instance, who we kind of care about a little bit more. Yes. They found that the aircraft in its descent flew over the Sunbury Airport in Sunbury, Pennsylvania at an altitude of approximately 4,000 feet. On or within 10 miles of the flight path and the scene of the crash, there were other visible areas on which an emergency landing could have been made. They found that a fire warning caused the crew to discharge at least one bank of the CO2 fire extinguisher bottles in the forward cargo pit. By the way, we just don't even use CO2 cargo <laughs> fire yeah, extinguishers and cargo yeah. holds anymore. That just doesn't... Not the right thing. The forward underfloor baggage compartment. So this one is... It's actually kind of standard these days, like forward... And underfloor. But the reason that they bring that up is because most cargo holds at the time were, they were like everything was on the same level. Passenger cabin and cargo hold was on the same level. Right. Usually cargo holds were like at the rear, somewhere in the nose of airplanes, somewhere like just a door at the front right. of the airplane by like in the passenger cabin. So that's why they state it's a forward underfloor baggage compartment. Uh, More traditional. Also, also, some people might be thinking, like, why did they use CO2? Because they knew CO2... Would put out a fire. Yeah, because, <laughs> our, like, fires feed on oxygen, right? So CO2 there's no will, oxygen. Right, CO2 will drown that. You know what is also fed on oxygen? 
People. Us. <laughs> yes, you are People. correct. Okay. And that was the problem. Yes. They found that six 15-pound CO2 bottles and six discharge valves were found in the wreckage. However, both the bottles and the valves, which had become separated from their respective bottles upon impact, were so damaged that no conclusions could be drawn as to how many of such bottles had been discharged prior to impact. So they don't know how many of the six bottles were actually used. Found that at the time of impact, the emergency cabin pressure relief valves were closed, and the control mechanism for such valves was in the closed position. So, safe to assume they were not venting the bad fumes for them in the cockpit or the cabin. They found that except for the apparent failures of the fire detection instrument referred to in finding number 5, Supra, the investigation revealed no mechanical failure of the aircraft or fire in flight. So again, there probably wasn't actually a fire in all of this. That's the unfortunate thing. They found that the emergency procedure for the operation of the DC-6 fire extinguisher system was established after flight tests were conducted in a descent configuration of 300 miles per hour with landing gear and flaps up. No flight tests were conducted prior to the accident in a descent configuration of 160 miles per hour with gear and flaps down, which configuration was also approved for DC-6 operations. I mean, yeah. Which, speaking of, remind me that there's something about landing gear we can chit-chat about in the post-episode. Okay. Anyways. Okay. An interesting thing happened here the other day. They found that at the time of the impact, the landing gear was in the up position, thus indicating that the aircraft had descended in the configuration of 300 miles per hour. The extensive breakage of the aircraft precluded any positive determination as to the position of the flaps. Which is interesting because anymore, I feel like they can usually figure that stuff out anyway. Yeah. So... They found that after the release of the CO2 gas hazardous con- concentrations of the gas entered into the cockpit. No, really. I think that's pretty safe to figure out, pretty safe to assume at this point. And the last one, they found that due to the physiological and toxic effects of high concentrations of CO2 gas in the cockpit, which would probably not have occurred had the cabin pressure relief valves been open, the members of the flight crew of the aircraft were rendered physically and mentally incapable of performing their duties. Pretty straightforward. They should have put on the gas masks. Yep. The oxygen masks. Yes. They were in the midst of being told. Yep. They just didn't know that yet. Right. Not yet. Is that, that it? That is all the findings. The probable cause. The board determines that the probable cause of this accident was the incapacitation of the crew by a concentration of CO2 gas in the cockpit. Period. Ta-da. I would argue, I would argue that it should say, due to an incorrect indication of fire in the forward cargo hold. But. The ultimate cause. Sure. You could have said, contributing to the accident was. Fair. The false indication of fire in the forward cargo hold, leading the crew to activate the CO2 fire extinguishers. But that's it. <laughs> There's no recommendations. What they did do after this, though, was force all the airline pilots to use... Gas uh, masks? Yeah, their masks when operating CO2 canisters, fire extinguishers, and thus eventually not using CO2 as a fire extinguisher anymore and finding safer alternatives throughout history and throughout time. Be it that this was 1948, we've gone through generations of different fire extinguishers since oh, then. Oh, yes. And this is by far and away no longer uh, an issue. But this was quite the dramatic accident. Yeah, crashing into a transformer. Yeah, being incapacitated and flying around at low levels erratically and then crashing into a, a 66,000 volt transformer and power lines and then falling straight down into an explosion on the side of a hill is nothing short of absolutely insane. Crazy accident. 
I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine, but literally, like, they flew into the Transformer, basically. You have to imagine they fell in the footprint of the cleared area for the cables, the, the power lines. So that means that they flew into all of this. The airplane literally came to a dead stop in the power lines and fell straight down. Yikes. Rapid deceleration. Very rapid deceleration. All right, friendos. That was United Airlines flight, I don't remember. 624. Thank you. All right, we got some trivia questions to answer. We do. No one actually has it but me because it's on the website. Yes, that's okay. Uh, I'm checking for listener questions. Because no one has uh, gotten the newsletter yet. As right, because we're this. recording this early. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, so the first one is, what was Al's first plane's nickname? We've said it before. Yes. It's Putt-Putt. Putt-Putt. And that's because that's the noise it made. <laughs> that's the noise it made. And it, out of all the airplane types that fly around Colorado, this is one of the slowest. It's not a highly recommended airplane for this altitude, unless you know how to handle it. My dad definitely did. So fun fact, this actually comes out on the 24th and the last day of the month that we have an episode come out is Halloween. Great. Yes. But however, this is such a short episode. Yes. That's why we're we going to do it anyway. going to do it anyway. Okay. What kind of plane does Al currently fly? Bonus points for what airport he calls home for it. I don't know the name of the airplane. It is a Cessna 182. It is a Well, I knew the plane type. I don't know the the name he calls it. Tilly. 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 That's right. Named after Tilly. Specifically, it's a 1957. Yes. He has a YouTube channel if you wanted to go look. He doesn't have a lot up there, but it's called Winds of Tilly. Yeah, I, I think we've mentioned it before when he was on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, I think he's mentioned it before, actually. Uh, if the not, air- then there you go, wins until you can go look it up. The airport he calls home is Trout- Troutdale. Troutdale out in Oregon. Yep, in Portland, Oregon. It's a famous, popular airport, and it's particularly famous thanks to United and their DC-8s and the, the unfortunate, uh, horrible history they have with DC-8s, Gresham? United, and DC-8s, and... Portland. Gresham. Well, it's but Troutdale's not Gresham. Troutdale is Troutdale. It's basically Gresham. But it's Troutdale. Whatever. So Portland in general has a bad history with United and DC8s. And United in general. Because D.B. Cooper also happened somewhere near-ish. Just across yeah. the Columbia River. Yes, too. Portland. Yep. So, I mean, there's a myriad of things that have happened with United and Portland. Crazy history there. What airport does Brendan fly out of? And what did it used to be called? Colorado Air and Spaceport. That's the current name. And it used, it used to, be to be called the Front Range Airport. Front Range. So, yeah, Air and I don't know why it says Air and Spaceport. They'll never do space stuff out of that airport. <laughs> I don't know why they um, did that, but whatever. It's because it actually has to do with this federal thing, and it's kind of funny. But basically, because we were entering into commercial space flight, plus the introduction of Space Force. Space Force. Space Force. They needed to have. A certain number of airports within, in basically a grid across the whole U.S. that are classified as able to handle a landing a landing spacecraft in the event of an emergency. What? Or just they would hundred percent just use DIA. DIA is literally minutes from there. Yes, but when Front Range put their hands up and says we're right here and we have a long runway, DIA was like, you know what? Take it. Have it. <laughs> Take it. Also, Buckley is an air and space. Oh, yeah. It's Buckley Space Force Base. It is Buckley Space Force Base now. They had to get like a new commander on Mm -hmm. base and uh, whatever. So all of that 
is also a thing. Yeah, it's space is dangerous. So, you need to protect space. Yeah. So if you look it up, there's <laughs> other spaceports around the U.S. too that are hilariously named that way. That's so stupid. Because only some of them decided to adopt that as like a thing. And they even at this airport, they went to great lengths to like rebrand themselves and get, they have this big giant sign outside now that's very like, I don't know, it looks like it was designed by NASA. It's very like space-esque. But this airport is nothing short of a tiny little GA airport with a little bit of traffic. Yep. GA traffic. Nothing special at all. <laughs> I mean, it's I'm not going to I'm not going to bash the airport. It's a nice little airport. It's just I wouldn't call it anything particularly unique. Nope. They definitely don't have spacecraft going in and out. Nope. What major GA accident occurred less than 10 minutes from where we live? We covered this incident. Mhm. When? Good question. Please hold. <laughs> Several months ago. Yeah, it actually was uh episode recent. 185. Yep. What, what did we call it? The Centennial Mid-Air Collision. Okay, yeah. I was like, I don't remember. There was a thing yeah. we called it. I don't remember what it was called. Yep. Centennial Mid-Air Collision. It was between the Metroliner and the Cirrus. Cirrus, yep. And the Metroliner just has a chunk taken out of it. Yep. And it's still sitting out at Centennial. Yep, sure is. With the parts. chunk. Used for parts. Just, just there. It certainly isn't flyable anymore. Well, no, I'm surprised they got it back to the airport. Yeah. And if you haven't heard that episode, you should go listen to it so you know what we're talking about. Yeah, it's quite the thing. Because it's, it's a lot. That was a crazy day. That was a crazy day. All right, friendos. Okay, that's it. I know it's a short episode. You should do all the things we always ask you to do, like uh, check out Patreon. And you should also get some merch. And you should also just be cool people and like keep listening to the podcast. Yeah, keep listening and liking and... <laughs> Subscribing sharing. and sharing and sharing's caring. Thanks. We do appreciate you guys very much for we do. doing so. And send us your stories and send us emails and suggestions and, and questions. Yada, 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 and questions and, and all that stuff. You can do all of those things. You can interact with us for free all the time. Yep. If you want. You might not get an email back right away or We all have day jobs. Yes. <laughs> very busy ones. Like some of you guys have sent some really nice emails. We greatly appreciate it. We've read them. We just didn't answer. I promise. Them. <laughs> I promise. We read them. We usually one of us reads it same day. It just depends. And on then we when. tell the other people and go, "Hey, you should read this." Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so we do read all that stuff. So if you message us or if you email us or whatever, yeah, like we do see it, and we will. If we don't answer you, just know we read it. Yes, and we will eventually answer you probably. <laughs> if it's something to be answered. Yes, uh, but we really appreciate it. We do like your interactions and things that you provide us. Yes. So thank you so much for listening. We hope you have a safe and healthy week, and we'll catch you all next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy and edited by The Lovely Page. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.